0: The scripture reading comes from Daniel chapter 4. Please follow along on the screen, the bulletin or your own Bible. Starting in verse 1, we read, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree "'that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, "'that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. "'Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, "'and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. "'At last, Daniel came in before me. "'He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, "'and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods,' The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, Tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Then, from verse 24, we read. This is the interpretation, O King. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws." At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth." And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, And his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of God.
1: Great. Celeste, thank you for reading that long reading and for reading it so well. I feel like you really brought the narrative to life, so thank you for doing that. Uh, Good morning, everybody, and welcome once again. If you don't know me, I'm Kevin, one of the leaders, and it is great to be with you this morning. A couple of new faces, uh, welcome. It's great to to see you and have you with us this morning. Let me pray for us briefly and then let's dive into Daniel chapter 4. So Father God, as we come to your word this morning, um, this amazing passage, God, once again, we ask you by your spirit to speak to us. Father, if we've come just to find three tips on how to be more successful in life, there's many places to go, but God, none of those things will deal with really the root issue. None of those things will really encounter our hearts. God, we come before you this morning because you are true. Your word is true. You are the one true living God, the most high God, as we read about this morning. And God, we want to encounter you. We want you to speak to us. And so Jesus, as we look at this word, won't you come and have your way? Won't you establish your kingdom in our hearts and in our lives? And as you do that, God, want you to establish your kingdom here in Hong Kong, we pray. Let your word be made known to us. Spirit of God, open the eyes of our hearts to see you freshly this morning, we pray. In your awesome and glorious name, amen. So we are looking at the book of Daniel, and uh, the reason we're doing that is because we are wanting to learn From Daniel and his friends, what does it mean and look like to be the people of God in the midst of a world which is not the most God-honoring world? Daniel and his friends are taken out of Israel into Babylon. Babylon is a pagan nation. It's not a God-honoring nation. But they are incredibly faithful. And we want to learn as Christians in 21st century Hong Kong, how can we be the same? How can we be faithful to God even in the midst of a world which doesn't always honor Him? Now, and today we are looking at Daniel chapter 4. Now, before we dive into it, I want us just to take note of one thing that's really interesting. Daniel was in the city of Babylon for 70 years, and that's a long period of time. And in those 70 years, we only have the recordings of about four or five things that he actually did in that time. And in chapter 1 and possibly chapter 2, most of those events take place in the first few years that he's in Babylon, the next few weeks that we're going to look at, chapter 5 and 6, the next two Sundays, happen right at the end of those 70 years. And in the middle, kind of 50, 60 years, we know almost nothing about Daniel's life, except this one event that we read today. The only thing that we know about Daniel and his friends in that large portion of his life is actually that he's faithful to God and he faithfully serves his boss, who in this case happens to be a pagan king, okay, Nebuchadnezzar. And that's really important because for many of us who are followers of Jesus, we want to do something great and we want to change the world. Our generation has been described as the snowflakes generation. Do you know what I mean by that? We are all told from kindergarten that we are like snowflakes. We are super special. We are one of a kind. There's no one in the world like us. We are precious and we are delicate. And what that means is that our generation largely thinks that by the age of 25, we should hit our peak and we all want to be like Daniel and Esther that live in the king's palace and just change the world disproportionately. But actually what's important to note is that for much of Daniel's life, he spent his life faithfully serving God and serving his boss as he lived in the midst of Babylon. And when his time came... Because of his decades-long faithfulness, actually God used him to speak with incredible wisdom and profundity. Eugene Peterson talks about a long obedience in the same direction. And much of the Christian life is like that. A long obedience in the same direction, rather than always being in the king's palace or the queen's palace with this disproportionate influence. Okay, so that's just by way of introduction. So let's dive into Daniel chapter 4. And this passage is an amazing passage, and one of the things that's amazing about it is that it's written, it's one of the only chapters in the Bible that's written by a pagan. It's written by King Nebuchadnezzar. He writes it in a way giving his testimony. And so look at what he says in verse 1. He says, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, the nations and the languages that dwell on the earth. He's saying, listen up, I've got a message for you. And what is his message? Peace be multiplied to you. It's a message of good news. It's a gospel message. He says, It seemed good to me to write the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, the book of Daniel up until now has kind of had this one melodic theme throughout the whole book. This one thread, which is that the kingdoms of the world are going to bow down to the kingdoms of God. That God alone rules of the kingdoms of man and the kingdoms of our world. Okay, Remember the statue of of, uh, in chapter 2, all these kingdoms and eventually a stone comes that's going to crush them all and is going to be established as the kingdom over all the world. So that's the theme for the book of Daniel. Now what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do here is he wants to take that theme and apply it not just on a macro level, kingdoms and nations and empires, but on an individual level. What Nebuchadnezzar is going to do here is he's going to show the great lengths that God will go to to establish his kingdom in the hearts and the lives of individuals like you and I. Okay, So let's see what happens here. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And um, like In previous chapters, he wants to know what's happening with his dream, this interpretation. He uh, calls all his wise men in. They don't know what's going on. And eventually, he calls Daniel in. And he tells Daniel his dream. And this dream is essentially a picture of a majestically beautiful, gigantic, tall tree. Glorious tree. It's a picture of unrivaled stature. And Nebuchadnezzar describes it like this. He says, its height was great. It grew and became strong, its top reached to the heavens. Okay, that's a reference to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, its top reached to the heavens. It was visible from the ends of the earth. So it's this picture of mag- magnificent. It's a picture of supreme glory. And under this tree, all the animals of the world take shade, and people come and take shade, and people get their food, and the birds nest. It's a picture of safety and security and refuge. And of course, this tree is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? And we're told that this is true. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most powerful men in all the world. He is one of the guys that built the seven wonders of the ancient world. Babylon was known for its hanging gardens, they had these magnificent architecture and infrastructure. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who, who kind of designed that and got it going. And Nebuchadnezzar is this amazing, majestic king. He is in many ways, as someone said, he is living the dream, right? He has this dream, and it's true, he's living it. I don't know if you noticed, uh, I think it's verse 4, he says, I was at ease, in my, um, at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. How many of you know that if you are powerful and wealthy, that often means you've got lots of headaches, Right? That's not always a recipe for ease of life. Wealth and power means lots of problems. But not Nebuchadnezzar. He is living the dream. He's at ease at home. He's prospering at work. The kingdom is growing. And he has a picture of him glorious and magnificent. But of course, something goes wrong. I don't know if you've ever had a dream at night that turns into a nightmare. The dream starts out. You're on the beach. Tropical island, drinking pina coladas, something like that. And by the end of the dream, there's some madman that's chasing you with an axe or something. Okay? A dream that starts out and ends as a nightmare. That's what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. He has this dream, and it's glorious. But then an angel says, chop it down. And the tree is felled. And it's brought, uh, it gets stripped bare, it gets chopped down. And what God's saying here, He's saying, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are going to be chopped down. You are going to be stripped bare. And the reason is because Nebuchadnezzar has become proud and arrogant. In fact, look at how he acts in verse 29. Having heard the interpretation of this dream, he seems completely to disregard it. He says in verse 29, um, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his palace. He overlooks his empire and he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Notice all the personal pronouns. I, I, I. Me, me, me. My, my, my. In chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, it talks about how the kingdom is going to come down. But for, for Nebuchadnezzar himself, it's okay here, things are a little different. Here, God says, you are going to be brought down. Daniel says, verse 22, This tree is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and it reaches to the heavens, but you shall be driven from man. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be made to eat grass like an ox. You will be wet like the dew of heaven. And for seven periods of time until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. I don't know if you saw in verse 17 when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he's telling it to Daniel, he says, And God said that this will happen until those that are living, the, the people of the world know that God rules the most that God the most high rules. But when Daniel interprets the dream, he doesn't just generically say this will happen until all people out there know he says, until you know. He's saying, you need to know, Nebuchadnezzar. You, God is looking you in the eye. And he's saying, there's a problem here. You need to know, O king, that God the Most High rules the kingdoms of the world. That he is God and you are not. And what Daniel is saying here is, there's, there's a problem, Nebuchadnezzar, and there's a cancer in your heart. There's a cancer which thinks that your majesty and your achievements and your success in life is because of your greatness. There is a virus in your heart which is telling you that all power resides in you, that you are distinct, that you are different from the rest of humanity, and that other people are not like you. And God is wanting you to know that as long as this cancer is the operating system of your heart, you are on a collision course with the almighty God. That's what Daniel's saying to him. Nebuchadnezzar's problem here is that he's become proud and arrogant. C.S. Lewis, who was this incredible writer, has an amazing way of describing the everyday affairs of life. And listen to how he describes pride. He says, I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they struggle with lust or alcohol, even that they are slightly cowardly. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of pride. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault of which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other faults may bring people together, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity, not only between people, but between us and God. And C.S. Lewis makes this incredible observation. He says, "There is no fault of which we are more conscious of than others and yet more unconscious of in ourselves." Friends, have you ever been talking to someone and they are complaining about somebody else, and you're thinking to yourself, "You know you do that very thing that you're complaining about? Has that ever happened? That's pride at work in our hearts. Friends, and the reason, do you want to know the reason for the conflict in our lives, the reason for conflict in our homes and our marriages and with our kids and with our colleagues and in the workplace? The reason is because there's a, a fundamental attitude in the human heart that says, I am wrong and I am right and you are wrong. I know what I'm talking about and you don't. There's an attitude that says, I am patient and you are so demanding. It says, I am so humble and you are so proud. There's an attitude that says, I am selfless and you are self-centered. Tim Keller says that pride is the carbon monoxide of all sins. We, it is invisible and you don't know that you're breathing it in, but silently it suffocates everything that is good and pleasant about our lives. And pride is obviously very sinister and it's deceptive, we, we see it in others, but we don't see it in ourselves. And one of the ways that this plays out is that we think that only those that think of themselves as great are proud, and yet those who think of themselves lowly are not proud. But actually, C.S. Lewis says that's not always the case. He says that to be humble is not to think of yourself as lowly. It's, to, it's not to think less of yourself. It's to think of yourself less altogether. The truly humble person is not someone who beats themselves up saying, I'm suck. I'm so bad. I'm such a loser. That's not the humble person. The humble person is the person that just doesn't think of themselves at all. Because when you think of yourself as miserable, I'm always a victim, poor me, the world treats me so badly, no one will ever respect me, who are you thinking of? You're thinking of yourself. And so C.S. Lewis says, Pride is the ruthless Unsmiling concentration on the self. And some of us are proud because we think of ourselves as being great and awesome, and some of us are proud because we think of ourselves as being miserable and victims. And both of that is a concentration on ourself. And so let's do something here. This is a bit of a risk. I, I hope this works out, okay? Let's do a little bit of an inventory, an assessment. And I want to ask us a bunch of questions, and let's think. Whether any of these questions resonate with our own hearts and, and just disclaimer, these questions came out of my own heart, right? So the reason I could think of these questions is because they mainly true of me. And so you don't need to put up your hand, don't tell anyone, this is just personally, okay? How many of us here, anyone in the last few weeks got angry with someone at work because they got the credit for something that you did? Right? Made you angry. How many of us here, friends, have felt defensive? or the need to excuse ourselves or justify something that we did because we feel we got caught out, cover a mistake that we've made. Friends, do any of us arrive at church feeling a mess, feeling miserable, and yet we determine determined to put our best foot forward, to put on a smile, because we don't want anyone to know how we are really doing? That's pride. Friends, anybody here struggled to admit that something is wrong or that you're unable to cope? Friends, how many of us bounce from job to job to job or relationship to relationship to relationship, never able to find contentment, and yet we always convince it's the other people, it's their fault? Friends, how many of us struggle to rejoice or celebrate or compliment somebody else on their success? Friends, do others find that we get easily angry or offended or that we have a short fuse? Friends, how many of us here struggle to say Sorry. We know this to be wrong. We'd rather just sweep it under the rug and just move on and and just hope that things naturally work themselves out. Recently, uh, I saw this in my own life. Um, Claire and I have this agreement that I won't have a meeting, a one-on-one meeting with another female uh, lunch or meeting without letting Claire know about that. It's just a good policy that we have. And so two weeks ago... um, uh, I had this meeting planned and I hadn't let Claire known and um, Claire says to me, hey, what's your day looking like today? I said, oh, I've got this meeting with this person, I've got a meeting with this person, and Claire says, oh, I didn't know about that, and it took me about 0.01 second to jump back. Well, I only made the meeting last night, and uh, I would have told you, and all the defenses came out, and Claire didn't do anything. All she asked was, I didn't know about that. And do you know what is happening? It took me about another 0.1% of a second to realize what is going on in my heart. Friends, sometimes when somebody gives me gentle corrective correction, I take it as they are challenging me and criticizing me. And there are relationships in my life that are not the way that they should be because of my defenses and my pride in my heart. Friends, pride is a sinister, sinister thing. And the temptation is to see in others, but not in ourselves. Pride is the unsmiling concentration on the self and is the fundamental problem of every human heart and the source of every bit of pain and conflict in the world. And that's why God says he hates pride. He detests it. In James chapter 4, James says, God gives grace to humble, but he opposes the proud. And that's a remarkable thing. God doesn't just ignore the proud or distance himself from the proud or avoid the proud. He resists them. He is in open opposition to them. He wages war against our pride. And so look at what God does to Nebuchadnezzar here. What God does is he makes Nebuchadnezzar physically what he has already become in his heart which is beastly and animalistic. For a period of time, Nebuchadnezzar will become animalistic and beastly because God is showing him and God is showing us what is true in his heart already. Now, just by the way, you might say, oh, I could never take the Bible seriously. I mean, what a joke, right? Do you know that Babylonian culture, uh, history tells us that there was a king on the throne called Nabonidus, who took on the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who for a period of seven or eight years was driven from his throne and went into the wilderness, and nobody knows what happens to him. For seven years, he was driven into the wilderness, and then he returned to his throne, to Babylon, where he ruled and reigned. Secular culture tells us, affirms what the Bible tells us here. Friends, bride will do that to you. It is an enmity with God, and enmity with man. It will kill our relationships it will prison it is a prison of selfishness, anger and forgiveness, and foolishness. Pride is deadly serious now, Daniel chapter four not only tells us the horrors of pride but it also tells us the beauty of humility because look at the example of Daniel here, and there's two things I want us to take note of. The first is look at the, the humility of Daniel in verse nineteen Daniel is a Told the dream by Nebuchadnezzar, and he's given this interpretation. And we are told that Nebu- he, is, he understands that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be brought low. And if I was Daniel, do you know what I would be thinking? I would be thinking, it's about time, right? Because just remember who are the Babylonians? They are Israel's enemies. It's one of the the kings called Nebuchadnezzar is the guy that marched into Jerusalem, burnt all the buildings, destroyed the buildings, destroyed the temple, not before taking all the sacred religious goods out and the, the temple furnishings and the sacred things, taking them to Babylon, installing them in the pagan temple of his gods, killing Jews but not before taking the very best to go and serve in Babylon. The Babylonians are the enemies of Israel. And now Daniel finally gets this interpretation. The king is going to be brought down. Glory, right? And so I would be trying my best to suppress the smirk on my face, but I don't think I'd be very good. I would be thinking justice. But look at what Daniel says here. This is unbelievable. Verse 19. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed. And his thoughts were troubled. The king says to him, Daniel, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And so Daniel answered, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. May its interpretation be for your enemies. Oh my goodness. Friends, where are we going to find humility like that? But doesn't this remind you of Jesus? Remember Jesus in Luke 19, he's on the way into Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is filled with people who have rejected his rule. Remember in just a few days time, Jesus is going to be put on trial and Pilate and Herod are going to say to the people of Jerusalem, behold your king. And they're going to shout back, we have no king but Caesar. The people are going to say, we want our pagan Roman oppressors. We will serve them rather than serve this man. And so here it says, what should I do with him? And they say, crucify him. And Jesus, just a few days before this, walked into Jerusalem. And what does he do? Luke 19 tells us. When Jesus drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept. Friends, he wept, saying, Oh, that you, even you, Jerusalem, would know this day the things that would bring you peace. Jesus' heart of compassion breaks for the people that are going to put him on the cross. Friends, why does Jesus act like this? Do you know why? Because he's perfect. And because he shows us what perfect humility and perfect humanity look like. But notice something else about Daniel here. In Babylonian culture, when the way that a magician or an astrologer would deal with something like the king's dream is they'd go to the king and they'd say, "O oh king, may this dream fall on your enemies?" And then they would try, by way of secret spells and omens and potions and all sorts of stuff, to cast a spell on the king's enemy. And so in a way, what they would do is to try and neutralize the bad thing that is coming to the king by bringing equally bad things news or omen or spell or worse on the king's enemy right so in other words the king's about to go in battle and the king has a dream that the battle's not going to go well for you and they would try by potions and tricks to put a spell on the king's enemy so that even if the battle wasn't good for the king it was even worse for his enemy okay that's how it would be done and essentially what they're trying to do is to remove the bad news or the consequences of this bad outcome from the king and put it on his enemy okay does that make sense friends do you know that we do the exact same thing in our day and age we call it blame shifting and so your boss comes to you and says why is the report late and he says it's not my fault it's my colleague they didn't give me the report on time they didn't give me the information or something happens and your spouse is upset with you says, it's not my fault it's my boss's fault it's the school's fault it's the helper's fault it's my children's fault It's the alignment of the star's fault. I don't know, it's someone else's fault. And friends, we do the exact same thing. We, like Nebuchadnezzar, try and shift the consequences onto somebody else. And at first, we try and dodge what's coming at us by shifting on someone else. And at first glance, it seems that that's what Daniel is doing. Except look at the way that Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar to avoid the impending disaster that's coming his way. He doesn't try and get Nebuchadnezzar to dodge the outcome. He doesn't try and cast some spell on his enemy or shift the blame. What does he do in verse 27? He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sin, practice righteousness. Let your iniquity and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Do you know what he's doing? He's calling him to repentance. He's calling the king of Babylon to repentance. Friends, right here in the book of Daniel, we have before us the gospel, that though our pride and our sin means we are on a collision course with God, we are going to end in destruction, God in his mercy has made a way for us not to bear the consequences that we deserve, for the consequences that we deserve to be put on the shoulders of somewhere else. And how? Through humility, through confession, through repentance, through turning to Christ, By breaking off of our sin and turning to Christ in confession and repentance. And friends, this is the main idea of Daniel chapter 4. This is what God wants us to see. That what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in the most dramatic of fashion is nothing less than... Friends, remember how Jesus is constantly pointing this out. It's not the religious or the dedicated or the smart or the successful that obtain salvation. It's those who humble themselves and cry out to God for mercy. Jesus is saying it's impossible for those who are rich in self-sufficiency, rich in self-worth, rich in self-justification to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has wealthy, powerful, influential people coming to him. And he says, you're not ready for my kingdom yet. You've got to go humble yourself. Jesus has children and fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners coming. And he says, yes, yes, you, you, you are ready. You can come into my kingdom. Friends, Jesus is constantly saying that the pride of life will destroy us and um, hinder us from uh, receiving his kingdom and salvation. And so, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, friends, is what, in dramatic fashion, is what must happen to anyone who wants to be saved. Friends, do you want to be saved this morning? Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Friends, do you want to know forgiveness of sins? Do you want to be born again? Do you want to experience the living God revitalizing your heart and your soul? Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, you must realize you're on a collision course with the Holy God, and it's not going to end well. Friends, do you know that your pride and your sin has put you at enmity with God? But God in His great mercy has made a way for your sin to be put on Jesus' shoulders. Will you humble yourself? Will you admit your need for him? Will you come to him empty-handed and find forgiveness and renewal and restoration? Friends, maybe you are a Christian here this morning, but your life is a train wreck. Your marriage is a mess. Your relationships are toxic. Your life is a train wreck because the operating system of your heart is pride and self-sufficiency. Friends, can I, with all the energy I can muster, look you in the eye and say, will you please humble yourself? Will you come and do what Daniel asks Nebuchadnezzar to do, which is to humble himself and to cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus? Jesus is longing to move towards you in grace. Will you move towards him in humility? Friends, Jesus says uh, in Matthew 21, he says, amazing, amazing verse. He says this, he is the rock. And he says, anyone who falls on this stone or this rock will be broken to pieces. But the one on whom it falls will be ground like powder, New New King James Version says. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that when you humble yourself, when you cast yourself on the rock of Jesus, your pride will be broken and it will hurt. It will be painful. Your pride will be broken. But if you resist, Jesus the rock will fall on you and he will crush you like powder. Friends, better to humble ourselves and to cast ourselves on the rock of Jesus. Let our pride be broken than let Jesus fall on us and crush us. Friends, I hope that we can see that Daniel's message to Nebuchadnezzar is God's message to all of us. That despite our sin and our selfishness, God has gone out of his way not to destroy us, but to save us. Did you see that part in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Where he says, God will cut you down, but he's not going to remove the stump completely. There will be a stump remaining. What's God saying there? He's saying, I will deal with you, but I'm not going to destroy you. Friends, when God humbles us, God is not being vindictive. He's being redemptive. God has made a way. God says, I will cut you down, but I will not utterly destroy you. God's humbling is not meant to destroy you, but to heal you. Friends, do you know that Nebuchadnezzar, the world's greatest king, and yet he experiences this unbelievable fall from grace? From being on the throne of the world's superpower and having all power and all authority, he goes to eating grass like an ox. He goes to becoming beastly. Talk about a fall from grace. Talk about humiliation. Friends, do you not know that there the story of the Bible is the story of the one true king: Jesus Christ, the most High God, who left not just an earthly throne, but a heavenly one. Jesus Christ, who too experienced a humiliation, not just eating grass like an ox, but ultimately was nailed to the cross. And unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus didn't end up there on account of his own pride and his own selfishness and his own stubbornness, but on account of ours. Friends, Jesus Christ, the most high God, was disgraced and shamed so that you and I can experience grace and renewal and healing and redemption. Friends, do you know that only by looking to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross will our Pride be crushed without us being crushed. You know, sometimes as parents, Jeremy spoke about being parents earlier. Sometimes as parents, we don't want our children to become proud. So, what do we do? When they're babies, we tell them they look ugly, right? Or we never compliment them. We never tell them that we're proud of them. We never tell them how proud we are. Or we never praise them. We don't want them to become proud. And so, what do we do? We starve them of love and affection. Friends, in this world, when the world wants to humble you, what will it do? It will crush you. Jesus Christ alone will humble your pride without crushing you. Jesus went to the cross and he says, I'm here because of you. And that will humble you. But Jesus will also say, I'm here because I love you. Jesus Christ alone knows how to both affirm you and build you up and crush your pride at the same time. Look to anyone else, and you may be humbled, but you'll be crushed and beaten. Look to Jesus, and you'll be humbled, but you'll be affirmed and built up. Only as you look to Christ can you be both humble and confident at the same time. Friends, throughout Daniel, we've been told that the kingdoms of this world are going to crumble and bow down to the kingdoms of God. And now Nebuchadnezzar shows us the dramatic lengths to which God will go, that he might bring his kingdom to bear, not just on the nations and the empires and the kingdoms of the world, but on the individual hearts of people like you and I. Can I invite you to stand with me? And we're going to continue our time of worship, and uh, we're going to have communion in a few minutes' time, but we're going to start off by singing a song of worship and devotion. And well... The band is coming up. I want us just to see how the story ends. Look at how the story ends. This remarkable change takes place in Nebuchadnezzar. And it's nothing less than a miracle of grace. Nebuchadnezzar, the king on the throne, is brought down by God. But God doesn't destroy him. He humbles him. And so look at what happens in verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Lord Most High. I praised and honored him who lives forever, saying, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Friends, at the end of this period of time, Nebuchadnezzar is transformed into a worshipper. And the story ends with the most powerful man, the most powerful nation of the world turning his eyes to heaven and saying, I do not rule, but you do. Nebuchadnezzar is transformed from a proud, arrogant man to a worshiper. Friends, what about us? What about us? Jesus invites us to come and worship him this morning, to lay our pride down, to recognize that he alone is God, that we are not. Jesus invites us to come and be humbled by Him, but also to experience His grace. And so I want to encourage us to take this time of both reflecting, but also worshiping. Let's look at our own hearts and let's reflect. And we're going to go into communion in a few minutes' time. But let's take this time to really examine our hearts, to examine the pride, to come before our God, To admit it, to confess it, to let God both humble us and fill us up with his love.